I think quality education is really the foundation for practically all the other sustainable development goals. If you ensure quality education, all the rest will be easier. All the other sustainable development goals that we have. I think it's fundamental that we figure out a way of doing this. I think it's absolutely wrong and unfair that those who are about to leave this earth are the ones making decisions for those staying in the earth. That doesn't make any sense. Greenpeace started in 1971 and our origins are in the northwest of North America. When back in 1971, a group of concerned individuals wanted to stop the nuclear testing of weapons off of the Alaskan coast by the U.S. military because of the devastation that it was going to cause to local ecosystems and livelihoods. I think my first teacher and inspiration was my sister. She is a botanist and she's the one who introduced me to nature and really connected me to how important the natural world was for me. And the second is Petra Kelly, who was one of the founders of the Green Party, the German Green Party. And I read her book, Fighting for Hope, back in 1989 when I was a graduate student. And it brought together the different struggles that are there, the feminist struggle, the peace movement, the environment movement, all into one system that we all need to be working to change. We have to solve three problems. We have to create a low-waste society through incentives to change individual behavior from consumer to user, through loss and waste prevention, intelligent resource management. We also have to create a low-carbon society by preserving the water, electricity, CO2 emissions embodied in physical assets or through innovation in green electricity and circular energy. And the third challenge, which is probably the biggest, we have to create a low anthropogenic mass society by preserving these existing stocks of infrastructure, buildings, equipment, vehicles and objects. The only strategy I know that can fulfill these three challenges is a circular industrial economy. Now, the last point, the low anthropogenic mass society, is simply because some years ago, the rapidly growing anthropogenic mass has become bigger than the world biomass. And that, of course, means we are destroying the biomass because we have a limited planet and we are destroying biodiversity and replacing it with a synthetic man-made materials and objects. And this in the long term means we are killing ourselves. So we have to stop producing anthropogenic mass, except in countries that don't have yet a sufficient infrastructures for education, health, living, sufficient food to feed the population. Don't sit comfortably on values that we consider are taken for granted. Go out and speak out for them and nurture them actively. Nurture the values of peace, of the values of democracy, of mutual understanding of tolerance and of sustainability. Speak out, speak out. You have means that even my generation did not have. You have means, the social media, it's incredible how it can be mobilized so easily. So make the best of the means that you have at your reach to speak out, to engage, to discuss, to debate. such a wild world there and there are so many different types of soil of course and all these different types of soil ecosystems astonishingly diverse places 
diverse in terms of the physical environment, diverse in terms of the living organisms who have adapted to different corners and crevices of these physical environments. So it's really exciting to see us exploring more and more these details of life in the soil, which remains so mysterious. And it's just with the help of modern techniques like DNA sequencing and other such methods that we give ourselves access to these mysterious realms. And so I think the natural world is where we come from. You know, we live in buildings and cities because that's what generates a living for a lot of people. But where we're most comfortable as humans is when we're in nature. And I think getting children, and this is the hard part about the income gap is, you know, can you get lower income children to have this experience as well? But I think if you can get children involved in discovering and appreciating and interacting with nature, that can change a lot of how they view things later on when they're business people or in government and making decisions. If I think back to the most recent winners of the Pritzker Prize, I can see a lot of really groundbreaking innovative practices being brought to the forefront. So I think the Pritzker Prize has the power to fossil, to enhance the discussion on the one end, and on the other end, it has also the power to involve a more global audience in this discussion. So it's not just limited to architects, because ultimately architecture is what we live in and we use every day of our lives. So all of us, each of us should be involved in this discussion. It's a really a common responsibility, where the architect, again, from my point of view, is the translator and the interpreter and the catalyst of all this. So in a way, so we should rethink what sustainability is and combine the art of architecture and the benefits to humanity and built environments. This, I think, is a lesson for every single architect from all over the world. My mother died years ago. What has induced me to write about her after all this time remains mysterious to me. It is connected to the climate crisis. As the natural historian David Attenborough says, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. In ways I cannot pretend to fathom, I have found that writing about my mother is bound up with writing about Mother Nature and Mother Earth. And no doubt it has to do also with my own aging and the buried life of mourning, the strange timetables of realization and loss. I grew up in central western New South Wales. It's like the Midwest. It's flat, more or less featureless, and there are vast expanses of wheat and sheep and not much else. And I remember as a child thinking, I wonder where all those trees have gone, because there were tiny little patches of eucalypt forest on rocky outcrops. And I used to met my friends were farmers and my relatives were farmers. And I used to go onto their properties and look around and think, well, I wonder what this used to look like. It was really just, I guess, the contrast between what I was seeing and what I could imagine had been there very relatively recently, a hundred years ago. I think the first thing to say is that we are optimists. We would not be in this if we weren't very hopeful. We believe that there are the signs there that we could actually be quite close to a tipping point where there is an up concerted global action powered by the hope and the desire of ordinary citizens to cut through these malign political and corporate forces and get us on a pathway where there's concerted demand from citizens um, that governments have to respond to for immediate action rather than foot dragging. We also believe that there are many stories of hope in the work we do to try to project and amplify the voices and experiences of those on the front lines. 
So we're not at the point in the United States of telling farmers what they can grow and can't grow. We probably will get there, but we're not there yet. And one of the things that we have focused on instead, and I think California is a great example with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which has broken down the state into a number of different groundwater sustainability agencies. Each one has a plan to basically minimize groundwater losses, or at least to manage them and stretch out groundwater losses over a long period of time. And so that's a slightly different approach in that what's being managed is the groundwater level. And what's not happening is we're not telling farmers, you can grow this or you can grow that. So we'll see how that works. It has a long-term implementation horizon, like 20 more years, which is a little slow. But there's a question on the table about will this be you know, either state or national policy? Will we get to the point where we start saying, like, we don't have enough water. Let's think nationally about food security and what crops we actually need for the health of people in the United States first and go that way. And what can we grow where given water availability and you know how we set up our food system? So we have a tremendous amount of work to do on this topic. My fear is that we're being reactive rather than proactive. It became much more poignant in my life in 2017 when my partner and I started considering whether or not to have a kid. And I hadn't connected the reproductive part of life to the climate crisis. And all of a sudden, this topic was the only thing I could really think about because it became such a dilemma for me personally as to whether or not I felt comfortable having a child given what the science says about where we're headed and what the lack of historical action means for the future of any child born today, even one with privilege and protection from its parental outset. At that time, I didn't have words to describe what I was feeling, and I felt very deviant for even questioning whether or not it was okay to have kids in the climate crisis. I didn't really see it reflected, and that started me on a research project looking at the psychological impacts of the climate crisis writ large beyond just the reproductive angle. And I very quickly discovered, oh, I'm not alone in these concerns and fears. It's actually a very active underground conversation of many people my age, millennials and younger, feeling the same around the world. Looking at my daughter, I just want her to appreciate the natural world. We have all these impacts happening and there's a lot of negative storytelling, but just going out and experiencing nature, it is still magical. And that inspires so much action simply by going and experiencing nature. And I think there's so much that we can do. It's about being optimistic now, not negative. We really need to focus on creating excitement around some of these solutions. And for me, there's no reason why the future can't be bright. You know, we can focus on these areas where we can say we can then be ingenious how we approach it and we can within her lifetime see that recovery real bouncing back from these major impacts that are happening so i you know try to keep this optimistic look of let's start really start thinking about the solutions and let's you know really look at the oceans for those solutions and there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, working on it just in the advocacy and policy space now. And then you look at all the people, the scientists and the engineers and the investors and the business people who are trying to create these new machines and bring down the cost. And the annual spend on clean energy globally is somewhere in the range right now, I believe, of about $400 billion a year. We're getting up there in terms of social effort. And it's hard to believe that with all these options coming onto the scene, that we won't solve or get very close to solving this problem during this century, essentially having a carbon-free energy system. We can talk about all the roadblocks and all that has to happen, but conceptually, we're kind of there. I mean, we know what we have to do and we have a sense of the options. And our philosophy is we think you ought to be pursuing all of those options because you don't know which are going to work out. 
where is the place that you feel best that you make your difference and working on it and being prepared if that doesn't work to change and try something different. It's a lesson that anyone of my age, I think, would give to anyone of a younger age and looking for their direction in the future that you've got to be prepared to dig in. You've got to be prepared to be flexible as well. And I think that what's at stake is the whole integrity of our planet. We've known in the scientific community for a very long time that the natural systems of the planet are going to be the first and hardest affected in most cases by climate change. All we have to do is look at the planet. Climate change, these fires, floods, hot spells, these are systemic failures, not flaws. They're not aberrations. They are built into the system. The system has been designed to ignore these things or to think of these things as either inconsequential or things that cost too much to fix. My message to you is if your self-interest depends somehow on keeping the status quo, just look in the mirror and see if this is something that you can reconcile within yourself. Is it okay that you benefit at the expense of everyone and everything else? Is that a way that you really feel like you are winning at life? If not, then reconsider what you're doing and just realize that we all live in this inextricably connected closed sphere in the middle of space. Anything that harms one area harms every area. There is nobody who can escape dirty air, dirty water, dirty food, economic, political disruptions. We're all in this together. So don't fool yourself by thinking somehow you're gonna come out of this unscathed and having quote unquote won while everybody else loses. I teach a course on abolition and climate change simply to get people to think about large systems rather than individual failings. And once you put that together, you see that the people who benefit from this are comprised an increasingly small portion of humanity. And it's been politicized in such a way that if you critique that, you're also against supposedly all these other things. We have to have a different relationship with politics. It can't be conservatives versus both camp radicals versus extremists. We have to scale it back to an understanding of how human beings can and might interact in much more kind and generous and less harmful ways that create social benefits for everybody. So anywhere there are humans, the question of what wild means is obviously up for debate because humans change their environment everywhere they go. But in parts of the world, people are much more vulnerable to climate change because they live in a place where they are affected by it. There are no humans that don't modify their environment. What's happened recently is that we've dominated the planet, the whole planetary system, and we're changing things quite dramatically there. But we've always altered ecosystems. That's what humans do. That's part of what it is to be a human. Some societies have managed to create much more balanced ecosystems over time, you know, it takes time. They do that through very small populations and a lot of moving around, a lot of migration. If they don't do that, it's very hard to put pressure on a certain ecosystem. And I don't think an ecosystem change is bad. I think what's happened now is that we push planetary systems to such an extent that we're actually threatening millions of lives because climate change is so extreme. And if you look at the trajectory that we're following, it's going to be so bad that droughts, extreme weather events, you know, terrible storms and flash floods, just as we're already experiencing, are going to become so frequent and so devastating. We don't want to make people just angry. We want to empower everybody to be an important, conscientious consumer. 
and through their actions and what they buy and do, they are helping animals every single day, many times a day. We need so much, but it's not need, it's greed. So we need to learn from the animals how to live more gently and consume less and be more thoughtful and look out for each other in this great circle of life. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Mischalski Foundation. This podcast is created by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Max Richter's music featured in this episode was Vladimir's Blues from The Blue Notebooks, Path 19, Yet the Frailest from Sleep, and On the Nature of Daylight from The Blue Notebooks. Music is courtesy of Max Richter, Universal Music Enterprises, and Mute Song. Associate producer on this episode was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.